everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. Suicide is America's hidden epidemic, and the suicides in 2018 of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade compel us to recognize the despair and hopelessness that affect people at every level of society. According to a recent study by the Centers for Disease Control, since 1999, suicide rates in the United States have risen by 28%. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death for young people and the 10th leading cause of death for death overall, with nearly 45,000 Americans dying by their own hand in 2016. Death by suicide stuns with soul-crushing surprise, leaving family and friends not only grieving the unexpected death, but confused and in anguish over this haunting loss. Suicide is devastating, and the effects of suicide on family members and loved ones of the person who has died by suicide can be severe and far-reaching. It is not something that time can easily heal. Suicide is extremely traumatic for the friends and family members that remain, the survivors, even though people that attempt suicide often think that no one cares about them. In addition to the feelings of grief normally associated with a person's death, there may be guilt, anger, resentment, remorse, confusion, and great distress with the ever-present question, why? Those left behind by suicide are often known as suicide survivors. As with the survivors of an actual earthquake, suicide families are in shock, simply existing in the wake of the destruction. Suicide can isolate survivors from their community and even from other family members. And as if the death of a loved one weren't enough to handle, suicide survivors must deal with the social stigma attached to suicide. There's still a powerful stigma attached to mental illness, which is a factor in most suicides, and many religions specifically condemn the act as a sin, so survivors may understandably be reluctant to acknowledge or disclose the circumstances of such a death. In this interview, Dr. Robert Niemeyer will share his insights into how we can work with the families and friends of suicide victims and help them through this traumatic event, even decades later. Robert Niemeyer, Ph.D., is professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Memphis, where he also maintains an active clinical practice. Niemeyer also serves as director of the Portland Institute for Loss and Transition, which offers training and certification in grief therapy. In addition, as one of the foremost authorities on bereavement and grief, he presents a weekly question and answer column in After Talk, a weekly question and answer column. Aftertalk.com is an online grief support site offering inspirational stories, poems, and quotes, 
and forums on the grieving process. Now to our interview. We're here today to talk to Dr. Bob Niemeyer, who is a noted specialist on the subject of grief and loss. Also joining us is Morgan Vance, a clinical social worker who has worked with victims of domestic violence, trauma, and loss. Morgan, let's just say a few words so that we'll get used to your voice uh, as different from mine. Okay. This is Morgan Vance. Hello, Barbara. Hello, Dr. Niemeyer. I'm very much looking forward to this. Great. All right. So now, Dr. Niemeyer, we're not going to talk specifically about the causes and prevention aspects of suicide today, but rather um, I'd like to focus on what this does to the family and the people who love the person who has committed suicide. The inter this interview is for therapists um, to use and help them with their practice and the work that um, that they experience when they work with clients, patients who come in with present this as, a, as their issue. So over to you, Dr. Niemeyer, what should therapists know? Well, I think what they should recognize, what we should recognize, I speak mm -hmm. as well as a, a practicing therapist myself, is that in some measure, all losses of loved ones through death, or even people who are not loved ones, but who are important attachment figures, however much they have disappointed, betrayed, or abused our relationship, all such losses have an element of trauma built into them. There is a way in which death, by its nature, tends to disrupt uh, what might be called our assumptive world, that kind of taken-for-granted set of beliefs that the world is in some measure predictable, just, uh, that we have a, a measure of control in how our lives go, that we are able to protect those we care for from terrible outcomes, uh, that other people can be trusted. And all of these assumptions, uh, including sometimes for people who are more spiritually inclined, the spiritual assumptions about the benevolence of the universe or a God figure, all of these can be severely tested and sometimes shattered by experiences of, of loss and, and death. And that's most particularly true when the losses are themselves inherently tragic and when they leave people struggling to make sense of the experience of even explaining how the death itself came to be, as well as trying to figure out what their lives are like and need to be about now in the, in the wake of that. So these are challenges that are so fundamental, so existential, so resonant that they leave people often questioning and broken, and sometimes seeking answers then in the context of psychotherapy, counseling, um, and good social work practice. Well, is it different for the, for the family if the person dies from, let's say, a sudden crash, a sudden accident, a plane crash, a car accident, and a, uh, the person has committed suicide? Are, are the two experiences different in some fundamental way? I think that they are, they are both similar and different. Um, I had the opportunity to work with my colleagues, uh, Jack Jordan and Franklin Cook and others, on a, a national work group to establish guidelines uh, for suicide loss and bereavement care uh, in these last couple of years. And one of the things that we recognized is that there are things that suicide deaths share with all deaths 
the sense of the person's absence from our lives, the way in which we need to reorganize our roles and goals in light of, say, the death of a, a family member. Um, all of these would be things that would be shared with deaths of all sorts, even if the person died as a function of progressive illness, for example, or in later life. There are other things that suicide deaths share, specifically with sudden death losses. That sense of being caught short, caught off guard, the, uh, being flooded with a sense of the unpredictability of the loss. At another level, then, we find that suicide-related losses share with sudden death losses, which would be a subset of all deaths, the sense of a violation of our feeling of predictability that life is going along kind of as it should or as it might be expected to. And so, of course, we need to reorganize our lives in the wake of these losses. And they are difficult, whether someone dies in a vehicular accident, uh, has a, a sudden and fatal stroke or heart attack. All of these have that element of kind of shock and disbelief. Then nested within the sudden death category, we also have uh, the category of violent death losses. And these would be ones that arise, uh, for example, as a function of homicide or natural disaster, or they sometimes it'll be uh, medical malpractice that eventuates in a sudden death. And these, these violent death losses that involve some element of human intention or inattention, of course, raise other questions about the role of others in the loss. Often they feature strong responses of anger, um, as well as the sense of denial, the impossibility of this happening, almost a magical wish to rewrite the story, to uh, find a way to intervene. Um, there may be fantasies of revenge in relation to such deaths. And then suicide, in addition to all of these things, all of these shared features of responses uh, in bereavement, may carry with it very specific uh, sort of uh, implications as well for survivors. And these would certainly include the feeling of abandonment by the person who has made what we presume to be a kind of conscious choice to leave us. There are also issues of sometimes a, a real rage or anger uh, at the, their having decided to, to end their lives. Uh, in this way. And, and then, of course, a fair amount of guilt because as a kind of initiated death, one that in which we imagine they have some level of volitional choice, although that is an open question, uh, whether or not suicide could be considered a chosen behavior, um, we have further issues that are entailed by that. So in all of these respects, then, suicide presents both a circumstance of, uh, you know, of universal difficulties uh, as well as distinctive ones. So I'm finding myself wondering about the causes of suicide, though perhaps that is a question for another interview. Um, well, of course, that, that in itself, Morgan, is an important point, that so too do survivors have questions about how do they understand the suicide. That whole notion of trying to step into the mindset of the person who died by suicide exercises kind of a very compelling and very disturbing draw 
a kind of magnetic draw mm-hmm. as uh, people in both in their hearts of compassion and in their just uh, uh, turmoil and attempt to understand what has happened to make sense of it, ask that very same question. You know, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, what was my role in this? Um, mm-hmm. How could I have done something differently? All of this counterfactual thinking is something right. that survivors experience, as we also do as uh, psychologists, uh, therapists, and, and helping agents. So how would you address these kinds of questions, such as how did this happen? How do I understand it? How could I have prevented it? How would you address them clinically? How I would address it would be by seeking the answers in the text of their relationship to that person, rather than in my trying to provide outsider commentary that uh, makes all things clear. Um, as a clinician, I don't feel that I have a God's eye view about right, such right, matters. Right. Um, mm-hmm. the, the client is the expert on his or her own experience and is far closer to the reality of the factors, uh, psychological or uh, you know, possibly familial and relational and cultural and economic, all of the things that fed into that fatal pathway, uh, they are much more likely to know about than am I. Typically, I will not have even met the person who died by suicide, although sometimes in the context of family work, we will have met and worked with that person. So I would tend to begin with a slow and careful unpacking of that suicide trajectory to get a bit of the backstory of the relationship. Um, What was this person's more distant past like? Can you take me back to a time prior to this uh, tragic chapter in uh, in your relationship with the the uh, the person who died, um, or in your in in that person's own life trajectory. Maybe at this point it was fairly disconnected from yours. Maybe they were living in another state, and he'd even cut off relations with you. Um, mm-hmm. What can you tell me about the nature of the relationship, the nature of the person, his or her story, before things turned in this dark direction? We'd probably spend some time exploring that. And that serves a couple of functions. One is it helps recruit relational resources by drawing on a history of a typically more positive relationship um, that provide then resources for entering in this darker story. Uh, It can be a kind of stabilizing intervention um, to focus first on the person and then second on the loss itself. And usually we have that latitude in our therapy. So I tend to practice a person first kind of uh, inquiry. Uh, Let's see if we can re-enter the story of this life before we focus very strongly on the story of this death. In the context of doing that too, Morgan, of course, um, we recognize the person is contending with an increasingly emotional story as they move closer to that the fatal kind of concluding chapter. Often there's a history of turbulent relationship that may span years or even decades. Um, Mm -hmm. It might have been punctuated by abuse of drugs or people or alcohol. Mm -hmm. There could be many factors that deserve some attention. So in the course of that interview, we're not trying to, uh, in a way, whitewash, to cover over uh, 
the maybe growing frictions or fractures in the relationship with the person. But we're trying to place those in the context of a relationship that is that perhaps most commonly was in some measure also good and loving, um, Mm -hmm. valued. And that does a couple of things uh, in addition to kind of consolidating people in a more positive relational frame. It also gives them license to grieve. Mm -hmm. And this is a license that is often taken away by the manner of death. It tends to disenfranchise the loss at a personal and social level. Um, the focus on the you know, the turmoil and trauma uh, itself can eclipse the more pure separation distress, the, the loving sentiment that underlies most uh, grief in its, in its pure forms. So it allows them maybe to grieve the little boy who was, um, mm-hmm. as well as the young man who became increasingly uh, chaotic and difficult to to manage or maybe even grew into, um, you know, an, an abusive adult figure. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here, of course, I'm choosing gender and so on uh, more or less randomly in order to just uh, speak simply. But right. the uh, th- that would be part of what I would do. And, and then I would slowly move into a review of the story of the dying and how the person became aware of that um, as it transpired and as it maybe gradually built across a, a series of threats, um, you know, whether verbal or, uh, or, or uh, physical, that eventuated in the, in the suicidal act. We can talk a lot more about that idea of retelling the story of the death, if that's of interest to you as well. We're in the middle of an interview with Robert Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. So that sounds similar to an important aspect of trauma work, which is reforming the narrative of what happened and meaning-making. Now, I suppose this would work very well with, with a small child, too, and, and you could say to the child, I mean, I, don't, I can't imagine that, well, it could be that a three- or four-year-old could express very well what, what they were thinking, but you might ask the child, well, tell me about your daddy, tell me about your mommy. And did you, what did you do to get it? Uh-huh. Or yeah, I think so. Or... Exactly. Uh, one can look at arts-assisted kinds of interviews and therapies. Uh, I, I've seen and done some powerful sand tray work, for example, in which people depict their relationships with their loved one um, mm-hmm. and what it was like as the, you know, as the problem field changed, you know, how did it used to be? How was it, uh, you know, recently? Um, so uh, I do think that we have a lot of a lot of tools at our disposal uh, for conducting that that kind of interview, whether it's with an adolescent, maybe in a adolescent uh, oriented support group, whether it's with a young mm-hmm. child in the context of family therapy, whether it's a, an adult in a you know in a family group or individual context. Uh, we have a lot of latitude in how we pursue it. I volunteered for a few years with TAPS, which is the Tragedy Assistance Program for people who've lost a loved one in the military. So I found that the group was really two groups, those who lost somebody to suicide and those who lost somebody in combat or in a combat-related situation. 
And the families who lost somebody to suicide had really very few resources available to them through the military. TAPS, which is not part of the military, is one of the only spaces that offer support and services to families that lost somebody through suicide. I also observed that there seemed to be almost a moral judgment towards the families that lost somebody to suicide or a feeling that the death was almost less valid or that their grief was not as strong. That's a big factor. I mean, the, the field, uh, a term that's used in the field is that notion of disenfranchised grief introduced by my friend and colleague Kendoka a number of years ago to say, to refer to deaths that in some way don't count, that receive little by way of social validation or recognition. Uh, they tend to be discounted, um, and often they are under-ritualized. Uh, they're dealt with through avoidance or shaming. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I think you're exactly right that there is a, a hierarchy of uh, military-related deaths in which the the death in combat is made heroic, and the mm -hmm. the death that occurs um, often in the privacy of one's barracks or home or in an automobile or elsewhere, uh, volitionally by suicide is you know is regarded as a failure and cowardly. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, the the military has done um, I think a an astonishingly good job in some respects of attempting to stem the tide of uh, of suicide uh, mm -hmm. in the ranks, the U.S. military. Other militaries around the world, like in Israel, also have dealt with this problem uh, very directly. But they often give far less attention to the impact of suicide bereavement on survivors. Um, and, of course, the the reality is that following military deaths, very often, they, the, you know, the, the family then is no longer service-connected. And so right. they may be relegated to inattention for that reason as well. So there is a great need to um, consider the the impact of bereavement in the military and suicide bereavement in particular um, in our forces and beyond uh, at a more global level. That was Robert Niemeyer, and I'm Barbara Alexander. Here's what's on tap for our next podcast when Dr. Niemeyer continues our discussion. All growth is in response to the failure of our current system. As long as we are sitting happily and contented in how life is going, we don't bother to grow where things are just fine as they are. But when the world falls apart, then we find new ways of putting ourselves back together. And, and that is one of the, I think, the great and often underappreciated dimensions of uh, bereavement and loss in all forms and tragic loss in particular. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. I have to say here that the views expressed by our speakers are theirs alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of On Good Authority. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com, so don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, Go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, 
This is Barbara Alexander, thanking you for listening.